The scripture for this morning's sermon is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask you to use your word today to shape our worship. I pray, Father, that you would use your word today to teach us how to see Christ properly and how to see Christmas properly and how to worship you rightly. I pray, Father, that through the joy and through the pain, we would worship Jesus' name at this Christmas season. And Father, by faith in you, I thank you for what you will do. Amen. Christmas is a unique time of year. It's also a fun time of year in which we get to do things and we get to enjoy things that we don't normally get to do we don't normally get to enjoy. Let me just give you a few examples. This time of year, we get to decorate our homes, don't we? Get to decorate our worship areas. We get to decorate public spaces with trees and lights and ornaments and various things. This time of year, we get to enjoy music, that some of which is worshipful and some of which is just fun. Although, I will tell you, I would actually pay Caribou Coffee to stop playing the rap version of I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas. It just doesn't seem right to me at all. We enjoy special foods and drinks, like in our home, Swedish coffee bread, Christmas cookies, eggnog. And although at times Christians do, and we probably should struggle with the commercialization of Christmas, the truth of the matter is it's fun to be thoughtful about each other and to buy each other presents and to wrap them up and to surprise one another. This year, our daughter, Rachel, asked for a, a mixer, like a kitchen mixer. And so we bought her a decent one, and we also bought her all the fixings for the family recipe for Swedish coffee bread. So in the morning, she's going to be happy, and by the afternoon, we're going to be happy. You see how this works? And the bottom line is, that's just fun. That's just not something we get to do all, all the time. And so it's fun. In addition to the uniqueness and the fun of this time of year, Christmas is also a profound celebration. It really is. Christmas is a time where we celebrate the coming into the earth of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We call this the incarnation. This is the process of God taking on flesh and becoming a man. And it's just an unbelievable, unthinkable thing that God in his grace would come and become one of us for our good. And while it is amazing in itself that God would even do this, when we really press into the reasons why he did it, it becomes all the more amazing. Adam and Eve and every single human being who has ever lived and had consciousness on this earth has willfully rebelled against God. And since God is infinitely holy and infinitely perfect and infinitely gracious, infinitely kind to us, every sin against him has an infinite consequence. The seriousness of sin has to do with the seriousness of the person against whom we sin. Sin is a personal thing. It's not just about our actions or our inactions. And although our sin 
required therefore an infinite price, although we had no way in the world we could ever pay an infinite price, although we had no way in ourselves that we could reconcile ourselves to God, having rebelled against God, God did something that ought to stun everybody who hears it. God himself came to pay the price for us that we could be reconciled to him. God himself in the person of Jesus Christ took on flesh and humbled himself and when he became a man he didn't come as a power broker, he came as a servant and he came as a humble, obedient person all the way to death on a cross. He obeyed the commands of God for us. He laid down his life for us and when he spilled his infinitely valuable blood, he paid the infinite price for our sins so that now whoever believes in him will not perish for their sins. They will not face the anger of God toward their sins, but they will have forgiveness and grace and eternal life forever and ever and ever. Beloved, this is the story of the incarnation. This is the story of Christmas, and it is stunning. It is awe-inspiring. It is worthy of a season every year of remembrance and of thanksgiving and of worship. And yet, even though Christmas is fun, unique, and even profound, we must also acknowledge that for many people, Christmas is a very painful time of year, is it not? In these days, some of us feel the sting of death as we deal with the passing away of loved ones, either in recent years or many years ago. For some people, this time of year is just profoundly painful because of that. Some of us are forced to deal with the complexities and the realities of of blended families. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day, and he was just explaining to me how difficult it is for them just to pull off a Christmas, how painful it is, and how much he loves Jesus, and yet he's eager for it to just all be over. It's hard. Some of us have to deal with the fact that we're low on money or we're out of money or we lost our job and we just can't provide the kind of Christmas for our family and for our loved ones that we would really like to provide. And while you might say that's a first world problem, agreed, but it's a problem and it's difficult and it's painful for some people. Some of us have few loved ones in our lives left. Some of us have no family left and this time of year is just very lonely. There are people in our city right now that are more lonely right now than they'll be at any other time of year. It's a painful time as they watch other people join with their families and they have no family. Christmas is unique, it's beautiful, it's joy-filled, it's fun and it's painful, beloved, it's painful. In addition to our personal struggles at this time of year, The truth of the matter is that the incarnation of Jesus Christ was filled with great joy and it was also filled with great pain. Let me just give you a couple quick examples. When Jesus was born, the circumstances of his birth were questioned. People did not believe the story his mother told about being impregnated by God and while we might understand that that's a hard story to believe, just imagine the shame that was on this family during the process of birth, after the birth, and in the years of raising this child up. Even to this day, people will cast shame upon Jesus and his family for what they consider to be a lie. We might not think this is that big of a deal. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine, especially you're living in an honor and shame culture and your family is constantly shamed just for the circumstances of your birth. Jesus' early days, as we're gonna see in just a few moments, were filled with tumultuousness, filled with difficulties. The Christmas story is not only about easy things, it's also 
about hard things. As Jesus grew, his own family divided over him. His own brothers turned against him. His own brothers rejected him until after he was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Later they believed in him, but while they were growing up, his brothers did not believe in him. His brothers shamed him. His brothers at times mocked him. And do not think that because Jesus was God, he didn't feel the pain of relational rejection. He did. He did. When we get back into the Gospel of John in a few weeks, we're going to see probably the height and depth of the pain Jesus felt in relational rejection. But that was just one example of many things he experienced. It was not easy for him. And ultimately, beloved, even though he came for the express purpose of lavishing grace upon human beings who would believe in him, his own people, some of the leaders of his own people rejected him, arrested him, tried him, convicted him, tortured him, and crucified him. Can you imagine coming back to your own family? Imagine you had been away from your family a long time. You come back to your family with gracious gifts and they kill you. This is part of the story of Christmas, beloved. And even though God took their evil plots and turned it all around, he used their evil schemes to provide the once-for-all sacrifice for sins so that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. Even though that's true, the point remains. Christmas is a story of great joy and of great pain, both things. Christmas is about hope breaking into the midst of despair, despair that's real, despair that's gripping. Christmas is about light, breaking into overwhelming and consuming darkness, real darkness, beloved. Christmas is about healing, breaking into debilitating sickness and debilitating disease and debilitating brokenness. And because this is true, there was great joy and there was great pain in the beginning and there is now great joy and great pain as we receive the grace of God in Christ and beloved, there will be great joy and great pain in this story until the day Jesus comes again and brings everything to its appointed conclusion and causes joy to overcome pain, causes hope to overcome despair, causes light to overcome darkness forever. But until then, until then, We live in the land of joy and pain in Christ. And beloved, until we understand that Christmas is about both of these things, we will never truly understand Christmas. And we will never truly worship God in this season as we ought to worship him. Through the joy and through the pain, we must learn to praise Jesus' name because he's broken in, beloved. He has broken in and he is overcoming but we're in the process still, we're in the process. Now I know there's some of you just occurring to me, you know the Bible really well, and you're saying, wait a minute, Jesus said I have overcome the world, and that's true, he has overcome the world, but as far as his people go, we're in a process with him, aren't we? We haven't quite got there yet, we're gonna get there, because he's powerful enough to get us there, but right now, through the joy and through the pain, we worship the glory of Jesus' name. That's life now in this season, and that's a good thing. By the grace of God, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. 
In those days, Herod reigned as the governor of the land of Israel, although the Roman emperor allowed Herod to call himself a king. Be that as it may, Herod was a king on a leash. Get that straight. He was a king under the authority of a much greater king. And because that was true, he was very zealous to gather as much power as he could in any way that he could and to do anything he had to do to hold on to that power. As Pastor Kevin taught us so well last week, Herod even went so far as to kill his favorite wife. Now, that's not something I want to walk around saying, although, Kimmy, you are my favorite wife. You're my only wife. Herod had many wives, and and for some reason he thought his favorite wife was a threat to him, so he put her to death. And he put her two sons to death. And he put his eldest son to death. And he put other family members to death. He was so brutal in the protection of his power that even the emperor of Rome said of him, it is safer to be Herod's huis than to be his huias. It is safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. Can you imagine that? One of the reasons Herod was so paranoid about retaining his power was that he was only half Jewish. And so when he heard that a group of wise men from the east, Gentiles though they were, had come into the land because they said a a baby had just been born who was the king of the Jews, probably therefore a full-blooded Jewish baby, Herod's impulse was to strike out against him and eradicate the threat to his throne as he had always done. And like any long-reigning despot, Herod knew how to put impulses into action. This is what separates successful despots from non-successful despots. Herod was a master planner. And so what he did was he gathered the leadership of Israel They called them the Sanhedrin, and he discerned from them that that child was prophesied to be born in the city of Bethlehem. They got this from Micah chapter five, verse two. And having that knowledge in his hand, Herod then secretly called to himself the wise men from the east, and he told them about Bethlehem. He told them to go find the child, and he instructed them that when they found the child, they should reveal his whereabouts to Herod so that he might, quote unquote, worship him, although we know what his true intentions were. Now the reason I think Herod didn't take more specific, aggressive action against Jesus is because everybody knew his reputation. And if Herod had just sent an an envoy of people there to take care of this problem, the folks in Bethlehem would have heard about it, they would have gathered their children, they would have hid their children away. And Herod's plans would have been foiled. So he did it under the table, so to speak. He did it in a way that he felt would cause him to succeed. Now, as for the wise men, they didn't know much about Herod. So they took these words of revelation and they set out for Bethlehem. And by the grace of God, a star in the sky rose up and proclaimed the glory of God in the purposes of God through the life of Christ and led them right to that child. And when they got there, they did not merely honor the child. They bowed down and they worshiped that child. They were Gentiles. They were dignitaries. And yet, Matthew says that they had, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy at his birth. I don't know how you state that any more strongly. And somebody rejoiced exceedingly with great joy at the birth of this king. And yet, there's the joy, here comes the pain. Just after worshiping the newborn king, they were warned about Herod in a dream. Just after experiencing the overwhelming, passionate, powerful joy of the incarnation, 
Although I don't assume they understood it all, there was a great joy for them. They were informed about the sinister nature of a leader of the Jews who really should have been there worshiping with them. In fact, Herod should have been leading the way and not following behind. And so out of fear of God, they chose not to reveal the child's location. That was a deadly decision that they made, potentially at least. And out of fear of Herod, they decided to leave the land of Israel as fast as they could, and they went back to their own homeland. Now, Joseph and Mary probably were stunned by the visit of foreign dignitaries. I think I certainly would be. It would be an, an amazing thing to experience. They must have been in awe of the purposes of God and the grace of God pouring upon their lives at that time. But, however, as the joy of these things began to set into their hearts, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream for the second time. The first time an angel appeared to Joseph, it was in chapter one, verses 20 through 21, and at that time the angel said to Joseph, listen, the child that's in your wife's womb, or in your betrothed's womb, we would say uh, fiance's womb, is genuinely from God, and it is not the fruit of adultery. You need to understand, Joseph, God is at work here. God is doing great things, so be at peace. Marry the woman. Move forward in this process. God is at work. So Joseph faithfully, faith-filledly bowed down and obeyed his God. The second time the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, he instructed him to flee from the land of Israel with the child and his mother. He commanded Joseph to go into exile, if I could put it that way. He commanded Joseph to descend into Egypt like Joseph and Jacob of old had done so many centuries before. Because, the angel said, the very earthly king of the Jews, Herod, was in search of the child and had determined to destroy their child. Just put yourself in their skin, beloved. Unbelievable joy. Dignitaries coming, worshiping, celebrating. A news from an angel of God. They're trying to kill the child. Pain. Difficulty. Uncomfortableness. Just imagine having to all of a sudden pack up everything and pack up your child and pack up your wife and go. And they're not just going for a few nights stay. The angel told them that they're gonna have to stay in Egypt until they received another word from God because this was not a temporary threat. This was an enduring threat. So I just want you to understand, right here in the beginning, right at the birth, great joy. I mean seriously, great joy. And that is not diminished by the fact that there was also great pain. There was also great difficulty. In humble obedience to God, Joseph obeyed the Lord and took his family down to Egypt, and there they remained until Herod died. Now, this is a very sad beginning to the story of redemption, if you think about it. This is a sad way to begin the story of God sending his son into the world to save sinners from their sin and from his wrath. But it's not as though these things took place outside the scope of God's knowledge or outside the scope of God's control. About 750 years before all these things take place, took place, God prophesied through the prophet Hosea that they would happen. And I'm not going to have you turn to this one because it's going to go pretty quick. But Matthew quotes for us from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. I'm going to read to you the whole verse. The whole verse says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. When Israel was in his infancy, 
I cared about him. I made a covenant with him. I committed myself to him. I gave myself to him. I promised that I would be faithful to Israel. And then he says, out of Egypt I have called my son. What does that mean? That means out of Egypt I have made you into a nation. You were just a family, a very large family, but a family in a foreign land. I called you as a weak slave people out of that land to make of you a people, to be a beacon of light in the world. I called you from nothing to everything. I called you from the lowliest of nations to be the highest of nations because I, the Lord your God, I loved you. I put my grace upon you. I put my calling upon you. But let me read for you now Hosea 11, verse 2 because this is the key to understanding how this relates to Jesus. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burnt offerings to idols. In other words, they kept betraying God. They kept committing adultery adultery against the God who was so gracious to them, so kind to them, absolutely lavishing grace upon them, and they keep walking away. They keep looking for hope in other places and in other things. They refuse to listen to the call of God upon their lives and to cherish the grace of God at work in their lives and to walk into the destiny God had created for them. Instead, they continually clung to the things that they knew and continually kept choosing idols over God. So while it's sad that Jesus had to go into exile from his own people at his birth, beloved, please understand that he was like a second Israel who was descending into the land of Egypt so that God the Father could call him back out of Egypt, but this time he would live all the days of his life in perfect submission to the words of his Father. He would do what Israel failed to do century upon century upon century, and what all of us would fail to do if we were in their place. And even as God called Moses and Israel out of Egypt for the sake of deliverance and salvation from earthly power, so God called Jesus Christ, his son, out of Egypt in order to provide deliverance and salvation from internal powers of sin and temptation and from worldly powers and from heavenly spiritual forces, dark forces in the heavenly places. God has called Jesus out of Egypt to deliver us from the things that cause us to be in brokenness with him. God has called Jesus out of Egypt to make for himself a people, not just of one nation, but of some folks from all nations. In the case of Israel, God called him out of Egypt to become one nation. In the case of Jesus, he calls him out to become one people, but made out of many, many nations. Beloved, it was sad, it was difficult, it was hard, but Jesus had to be thrust into Egypt so that he could be called out of Egypt in the fulfillment of so many things, in the fulfillment of all of the promises and prophecies of God. Beloved, there is great joy, there is great pain in the Christmas story, but I'm telling you, the joy is going to overcome the pain. As for Herod, He was incensed when he discovered that he had been outwitted by the wise men and that his plot to destroy this threat to his throne had been foiled. And so he commanded his henchmen to carry out plan B, a plan that he probably had conceived earlier. Specifically, 
Herod knew from the wise men that the stars had been witnessing to the life of Jesus for over a year. The heavens had been declaring the glory of God in the life of Jesus Christ for over a year. And so he said, well then, let's go to Bethlehem and the surrounding regions, and in that area alone, I want you to take the lives of every male who's two years old and under. I used to think Herod had made this command throughout the nation, but when I read the text more carefully, he made this command only about Bethlehem and that region. When you look into the details, this probably means that about 50 little guys lost their lives in those days because of the evil ambition and the consuming paranoia of a man who cared more about himself than he cared about the purposes of God in Israel or the purposes of God in the world. And unfortunately, this kind of purging for the sake of power was not uncommon in that day. It wasn't uncommon for Herod. It wasn't uncommon for other despots in that day. And if we're being honest about it, we look around the world that we live in right now, it's not uncommon now either. In fact, it's probably worse because despots have technology available to them that allows them to put to death a lot more people at once. We could multiply stories of people living right now in our time that kill folks by the tens and the hundreds and the thousands and the tens of thousands to protect their power. So what Herod did was very sad, but it was also sadly common. But again, Matthew helps us to see that this was not outside the scope of God's knowledge was not outside the scope of God's control. God was not surprised by this painful occurrence. He, in fact, quotes in Matthew 2, 17 through 18, he quotes from Jeremiah 31, 15, words that were spoken 500 years before all these things transpired. Now, it's always a good thing when you read an Old Testament quote in the New Testament I always recommend to you that you go back to the Old Testament, read the quote in its context, and pray about what it means. In this case, it's very important. So if you want to turn with me back to Jeremiah 31, and if you don't know the Bible very well, I just just ask someone around you to help you. If you're in Matthew, hang a left, and you'll find it eventually. It's a little bit bigger book. But really, just ask someone around you. People will be glad to help you. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 31, The whole chapter is really relevant, but I want to read with you just verses 10 through 17 and sort of see with you the context of this prophecy about the death of the children. Jeremiah writes in 31.10, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, plural, and declare it in the coastlands, plural, far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. So beloved, this is a word of hope given to people who have been scattered in exile. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, another word for Israel, and he has redeemed him from hands that are too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, that is Jerusalem. And they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. And their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice and dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and I will give them gladness for sorrow. Yes, eventually the joy will overcome the pain. 
I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. And now the word that Matthew quotes. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, which is a place near Jerusalem where Rachel's tomb, Jacob's wife, was located. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Matthew says that's about what Herod did. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for there is a reward for your work. Yes, there is great loss, pain, and suffering, but there is more, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. So when we look at the prophecy of Jeremiah 31, 15, in its context, I think we see that the point is this. The promise of hope is irreversible, but it will come with great pain. The process of restoration is already in place, but it's going to unleash fresh suffering. The reality of renewed life for those who believe is going to cause death for some at the hands of those who refuse to believe and who strike out against God in return for his grace. The Lord is definitely not saying to us about this story. He's not saying, listen, you've been in rebellion for longer than you can remember and I'm gonna lavish my grace upon you because I am a gracious God. However, in the process, I'm gonna have to take the lives of someone, of some that you love because that's the price that you have to pay. The Lord is not saying that. Matthew is not saying that the Lord is saying that. I think it more goes something like this. I'm gonna speak as though God is speaking, so please give me grace. I'm clear these aren't God's words. This is just how I'm understanding the prophecy given here and quoted here. Just as Pharaoh, in his evil heart, sought to snuff out the hope of Israel and protect his power by commanding that all the male children of the Jews be killed at birth, so Herod, a partial Jew, also evil in his heart, would seek to snuff out the hope of the nations and protect his power by commanding that all the children of a certain age and in a certain place be destroyed. And even as I am seeking to break into and overcome your rebellion, the rebellious and the powerful among you will strike out against me and cause fresh pain in the sight of grace. Beloved, I think that's the dynamic of what's being said here. And I wanna say that that same dynamic is playing out in the world right now, this very day it's playing out. All over this earth, the gospel is being preached right now. We're sort of at the end of a long wave of gospel preaching that's been happening. It's now our turn here in the Midwest of the United States. People have been up preaching for hours and hours, and they're gonna continue preaching and worshiping all day long. The gospel is being proclaimed today around the earth probably like few days in any year. And people who hate the gospel are in parts reacting to the people of God by insulting them, by persecuting them, and even by taking the lives of some of them. I have no doubt but that some of our brothers and sisters today have paid for the preaching of the gospel with their lives because the grace of God is being spread abroad, but the rebellious don't want it. They're gonna do anything they can to destroy it. They're gonna do anything they can to snuff it out, beloved, 
the story of Christmas is really, truly, honestly, the story of irreversible hope breaking into the world, but it's a war, it's a real war. And this is why there's joy and this is why there's pain at the same time. It's a story of great joy entering into great pain and while the pain will have to remain for some time yet, eventually joy will overcome pain, light will overcome darkness, hope will overcome despair. But again, right now, we have to grapple with the fact Christmas is about both things. Almost two years after Herod carried out this evil deed, his efforts to protect his power failed, and you know why? Because he died. It's the one thing despots don't stop to think about. They're going to die. They're not going to be able to hold on to their power forever. Jesus would have been about two years old at this time. And right about this time, by God's grace, an angel of the Lord again appeared to Joseph, instructed him to gather his things, to prepare the child and his mother, and to go back to the land of Israel. In humble obedience, Joseph submitted to the command of God and to the words of the angel. He took his family back into the land of Israel. But when he got there, he found out that Herod's son, Archelaus, was now reigning in his place, and he was scared. And he did not want to go back to Jerusalem where Archelaus was reigning. He did not want to go back to Bethlehem over which God was reigning because he was afraid. And you know what? He had good reason to be afraid. Archelaus was just like his father. The Roman emperor let him take over Herod's spot, but the Roman emperor limited his scope of power. He only reigned over three providences, Judea, Samaria, and Idumea, all or Edom as some of you might know it. They're all provinces around the Jerusalem and Bethlehem area, a limited scope. So Archelaus took what he could get, and the first thing he did was he put to death 3,000 prominent people because he saw them as threats. Whether they were threats or not, he was just like his dad. So brutal was this guy that only a couple of years later, Herod removed him, I mean, the, the emperor of Rome removed him from his place and banished him to another land way far from Israel where he spent the last days of his fleeting life. Joseph had good instincts, beloved. Archelaus certainly would have come after him if he would have returned to Jerusalem or if he would have returned to Bethlehem. Since Archelaus, though, did not have authority over the northern regions of Israel, the angel of the Lord commanded Joseph to go up north. He told him in a dream, go up north. And don't you praise God for a well-timed dream. Like, don't go here, go there. Don't go here now, go there and go there now. And for whatever reason, Joseph decided to make his home in the city of Nazareth, another choice which, which Matthew tells us was not random. Matthew tells us this choice fulfilled the words of the prophets. In chapter two, verse 23, he says this, namely, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if you have a study Bible, or if you have a fancy Bible app that has notes and stuff like that, you're gonna notice that there's no specific Old Testament reference given for verse 23. And the reason for that is that there is not any place in the Old Testament that ever says Jesus is gonna live in Nazareth. There's not a place in the Old Testament where it says he's gonna be called a Nazarene. But there are many places in the Old Testament where it says that Jesus will be lowly, that he will be despised. There are many places where it says that he will not be a power broker and that he would not have the basic credentials and honor of a person of honor in this world. 
And I think this is why Matthew says that Joseph's decision fulfilled the words of the prophets, plural. If you look at verse 23, you'll see it says prophets, plural, and not any one particular prophet. Some of you may remember from the Gospel of John that when Philip told Nathaniel about Jesus, what did Nathaniel say? He said, wait a minute, dude, it's my translation. This can't be the king of Israel, this can't be the Messiah, why? Because he's from Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth, it's podunk Israel. Nothing good comes from there, nothing great comes from there. Lowly and despised was Jesus Christ, beloved. The point that Matthew is making is that God loves to use the low things to shame the high things. He loves to use the, the poor things to shame the rich things. He loves to use the weak things to shame the strong things. He prophesied that Jesus would not be an honorable person as the world conceived these things, but that he would be glad to go to the low place so that God could exalt him to the very highest place. God was and is willing to use difficult, painful, tragic confusing circumstances to bring a joy into the world that simply can never be taken away from those who believe in him. No matter what the reactions, no matter what the evil responses of those who reject the grace of God, the truth is that the joy of God through Jesus Christ can never be taken, it can never be diminished. This story is about great joy, it's about great pain, and it's about the reality that someday the joy will overcome the pain. The truth of the matter, as I said earlier, is that Christmas is about hope breaking into despair, but the despair doesn't automatically dissipate. You're not gonna get your best life right now. It's not gonna happen. The Christmas story is about light breaking into darkness, but the darkness doesn't all flee at once. It's about healing breaking into sickness, but we don't all get our healing right away. And because this is true, there was great joy and great pain then, there's gonna be great joy and great pain all the way to the day when Jesus Christ comes back. But in the midst of the joy, in the midst of the pain, believers are able to worship Jesus' name because we know he's at work in all things. And we know that nobody will be able to overcome his purposes in Jesus Christ. Herod couldn't do it. The Sanhedrin couldn't do it, nobody can do it. God will accomplish his purposes in Christ. To symbolize this truth, I don't know if you know about this, but the ancient church leaders chose to celebrate Christmas at this particular time of year for a particular reason. You know, historically speaking, Jesus was most likely born in the springtime, not in the wintertime. But when the early church fathers were putting together the church calendar, they thought that they were less concerned about the specifics of times when Jesus was born and all that. They were more concerned about the symbolism that is right inside the earth that might preach the gospel to us. So they decided to put Christmas on December 25th, first of all, because it does jive with the Jewish tradition that we'll talk about some other time, but also because it's perfectly placed so that it will always occur after the winter solstice, or as Asa Vick and I have been calling it, the, the winter sun stop. There's some people offended by the word solstice. Okay, it just means sun stop. It's the winter sun stop. This year, on December 21st, the days stopped getting shorter. The sun paused. On December 22nd, the days started getting longer. And although the fact is imperceptible right now and it's imperceivable for the next few weeks and in just a couple months from now, we'll be looking at our watches saying, wow, 
It's six o'clock and the sun is out again. Why? Because the sun has turned, light has broken in. It's starting to overcome darkness and one day the darkness will fade away and the light will shine. The early church fathers thought it was wise to celebrate Christmas right at this time of year when the darkness is the greatest in the earth but the light has come and it has begun to take over. Beloved, right now, during Christmas, we celebrate hope in the midst of remaining darkness by faith that God will fulfill his promises, that he will do everything he said he was gonna do in and through Jesus Christ, and one day the joy will overcome the pain, one day light will overcome darkness, one day hope will absolutely swallow up despair. No matter the difficulties or pain of this season, Jeremiah 31 remains. The Lord says, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And that hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Herod sought to kill a bunch of little children. God said, I will strike one, and he will be my son. And when I strike him, he will spill an infinitely valuable blood so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Anyone who believes in him will be welcomed into the kind of love that Pastor Kevin talked about to us earlier. A profound love that loves no matter what. A profound love that never gives up. A profound love that causes light to overcome darkness, joy to overcome pain, hope to overcome despair. So let's pray now that God will help us to receive these things. Our Father, I'm so deeply grateful for your word. Lord, even in our own family, there is plenty of pain to go around on both sides of our family. Plenty of difficulties at this time of year. And I'm so grateful to know that you're a God who brings joy and you're a God who is not blind to the difficulties. I'm so glad that you're a God who leads us forward and you're a shepherd who ministers to our pain in the midst of the remaining darkness. And I pray, Father, that you would use this word now in the lives of your people. I, I pray that you would use it to give us joy and to give us hope. I pray that you would teach us, Father, that we can worship you through the joy and through the pain. I pray that you would use your word to shape our worship. And by faith, Father, I thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' mighty and merciful and matchless name, amen.